Well, the theme was the new heaven and new earth to which we are all headed if we are in Christ Jesus. Um, so why would we sing that song in the middle of Hebrews 11? Because these men and women took the long view. They took the long view. I know we have only a handful of people here tonight, but I'm going to ask you, have you taken the long view? Have you taken the long view? I don't often quote Mick Jagger. Rohan, do you know what I'm going to, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Chene Lo knows. Shibomi probably knows. I've used this before. Daniel might know. I don't often quote him, but I looked it up yesterday. Do you know how old Mick Jagger is? He's 78 years old, and he's still touring. This is wrong. Uh, you know, there's something. I think you age out at some point, right? I think the sell-by date, I think he's passed. But he's 78 years old. I still remember as a boy in the 60s, um, at one of those popular swimming places and they had loud music playing and I still remember this song playing over the loudspeaker. Um, I can't get no satisfaction, right? You know this song, right? I can't get no satisfaction. Um, now Jagger is a hedonist, right? You know what a hedonist is, a man who gives himself over to simply pursuing pleasure. Uh, I don't know, obviously, Mr. Jagger, but based on his music and his persona and lifestyle, I'm thinking he is a committed hedonist. He's a proficient hedonist. Um, and yet he sings, I can't get no satisfaction. And he says, I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no, right? You guys know where I'm going with this, right? He can't get any satisfaction. The other guy I quote on occasion, you know who it is, Chene Lo, when I'm talking this way? Do you know who it is? John Not John Lennon. That's, that's on the heaven. That's, that's on a different, that's a different theme. Um, Oscar Wilde, famous, what was he, 19th, 20th century? No, 19th century playwright and libertine. Two tragedies, Tunelo. There are two tragedies in life. One, not getting what you want, and two, getting it. I've always loved this quote. Now, Oscar Wilde is not someone you wouldn't quote very much. I mean, but do you understand what he's saying? There are two tragedies in life. Not getting what you want, but getting it. Why is that a tragedy? Getting it. You spend your whole life pursuing a thing or a person or an accomplishment, and you find out it gives you absolutely zero satisfaction, right? No satisfaction. That is a tragedy, and that's what Oscar Wilde is talking about. Um, there's only one tragedy, really, for mankind, and that's, that's in his wanting, right? This is from Genesis chapter 3, when, when man, mankind fell in the garden. It's been our wanting. We don't want God. 
like we ought. We don't desire God like we ought. We don't pursue God like we ought. There's something wrong with our wanting. So there's really one tragedy here. There's something wrong with what it is we think we want. We know that God has set eternity in our heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11. What are the implications of that statement? Only God can satisfy you. Now, you, you can chase everything you want to chase in the world. You, you can chase it until the day you breathe your last, but you will not find any satisfaction in it. You will not find it. Only God can satisfy your heart. Again, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in the heart of man, and you must have God. You must have God. Everything else is too small. What if you make that first, second, third, one hundredth billion dollars? What if you accomplish everything you want to accomplish, but you do not know your Creator? You do not know your Savior. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. If you could pour the whole cosmos into the heart of mankind, you wouldn't move the needle at all. And I don't know if all of you, if all of you get what I'm saying, if all of you are, have reached a, an age where you, I think most of you have, you've reached an age where you understand what I'm saying is true. If you don't have God, you don't have anything. You, you absolutely have nothing. You can, you know, what did Jesus say? Um, you can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, right? What does it profit you? What does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? It doesn't profit you anything. Man must have God. God says to us, I love this, Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? You guys know Jeremiah 2.13. God says, Why do you forsake me, the fountain of living waters, and drink from broken cisterns that can hold no water? All the way through the Bible, between the lines, God is saying, Come and taste me. Come and see how awesome I am. Right? Come and find out who you're really supposed to be. You're supposed to be who I made you to be, who I redeemed you to be. You're not supposed to be off running your own errands. You're supposed to be doing my errands, right? And only when you're doing my errand does your heart beat fast and is your mind engaged and your soul is full of life and joy. This is the invitation that God has offered to us. So I'll ask you, how have you responded? And this is all in the context of Hebrews 11. What did these men and women do? They gave themselves away to God. They just, they absolutely gave themselves away to God. And God is saying, this is what faith looks like. It looks like men and women who have given themselves away to me. That's what it looks like. That's what the Lord is saying to us in Hebrews 11. So I ask you, how have you responded to God's invitation? Are you pursuing God above all else in your life? Are you a Christian hedonist or a worldly one? 
And for those of you who are visiting, what is a Christian hedonist? A Christian hedonist is the man or woman who understands that God is the consummate pleasure in the cosmos. And that man or woman is pursuing, is pursuing God above all else. I love John Piper, famous preacher in the States. I love his definition of sin. Listen to this. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. The suicidal exchange. So if you've got anything above God, you're committing suicide. Because if you've got anything above God, that by definition is sin. That's sin. What, what, maybe it's your, it could be your spouse, it could be your kids, it could be your career. Well, it doesn't matter what it is, it's sin. If you have anything, anyone above God... That is a suicidal exchange, as John Piper says. Sin is the insanity of exchanging God for small, temporal, fleshly, worldly things. This is an insult to God. I mean, there's no other way to say it. This is an insult to God. If you've got anything above Jesus Christ, that is an insult to God. And it's also suicidal. It's suicidal to your soul. This is what the men and women of Hebrews 11 figured out, right? I'm, 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 I'm talking in the context of Hebrews 11. This is what they figured out. They figured out that why, they, why did they exist on the planet? What's their life about? Pursue God and obey God. Whatever he says, we'll do it. Whatever he says, we will obey the Lord. You know, C.S. Lewis, you guys know, I quote him pretty regularly. He talks about us being far too easily pleased and how, we, how, how man, uh, mankind settles, how we settle for a comfortable life and, and, and how we settle for conformity with the world. Uh, it's a beautiful analogy that he makes. Why would we settle when Jehovah has invited us to walk with him? I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question. Why would you settle for anything less than God? You're a human being made in his image. For the sole purpose of, of imaging forth the glory of God. Why would you settle? Why would you settle, you know, for a, a successful career or a perfect family or a wonderful retirement or whatever? Why would you settle for those things? They're too small for the born-again believer. They were too small for the men and women of Hebrews 11. It's so what we learn about biblical faith in Hebrews 11. It does not settle. It puts God first. It pursues him. It loves him. It understands the whole Christian hedonist thing. God is the consummate pleasure. And so we pursue him above any and all. Hebrews 11, last two weeks, we talked about God's definition. That's in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Um, again, it doesn't really matter how anyone else defines faith. It doesn't matter how I define it or how some guy with a pointed hat defines it or whatever denomination. It doesn't matter how anybody defines it. The only thing that matters is how God defines it. And I, I read to you from the, uh, I think it was the New King James translation. God defines faith like this. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Why is that true? Because he is the object of our faith. We've talked about it. We don't have faith in our faith. 
Some denominations, they, they seem to promote faith in your faith, faith in your wor uh, words, right? The biblical Christian has faith in God. Faith in God. Not in our faith, not in our prayers, not in our sacraments. Faith in God. That's one thing that we have talked about. So we could summarize it like this, that definition there in Hebrews 1. God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. Now last week we talked about Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. What, what do we mean by faith? We mean Hebrews 11. It's Abraham. It's Sarah. It's Noah. It's Samuel. It's Moses. It's Rahab. It's Gideon. What did they do? They obeyed God. They just obeyed God. We, we talk about it all the time. Christianity is fundamentally, pristinely simple. Obey God. Right? You've been, you've been saved by grace through faith? Get on with the obedience. Right? That's, that, it's pretty simple. It's always... It's always simple. We made the point that if you believe the first thing about God, obviously that He is, without believing the second thing about God, meaning that, that He's a rewarder, you will never engage in the kind of obedience God is calling you to. Right? You just won't do it. Unless you believe God is good. You must believe He's good. Or you won't obey Him. You certainly will take no risks for him, we talked about it. You can you can go to church. You can be a church member, but you can't you can't walk with Christ if you don't believe He's good. You won't walk with Christ if you don't believe that He's good. But I want to say this: if you believe He's good, <laughs> you're one of the most dangerous people on the planet, and God will use you for His glory. And there will be conversions in your wake, not because you can save anybody, but God will do a work through the faith you put on display in the world. So I'll just stop and ask you, what does your faith look like in the world? What does it look like out there? What would the disinterested person, third party on the street, say about your life? Do you have this aroma of faith in Yahweh? Do, the, do you have this, this fragrance that my God is God and my God is good and I'm going to live like that? that? Like that's real? Like that's true? What does your faith look like to your average unbeliever in the world? It's beautiful. Hebrews 11.1, 1, God defines it. Hebrews 11.6, God tells you the true criteria of true faith. You must believe I am, and you must believe I'll reward your socks off when you come after me. This is what real Christianity looks like. Very simple. Very beautiful. So I, one thing I'm calling you to tonight and through this, this uh, series is I'm challenging you not to settle anymore. Why did we sing about heaven in the, in the music? Because these men and women are taking the long view. And I, I, again, are you taking the long view? Are you just trying to get through the week? You're just trying to get through the year? You're just trying to, you know, build the career, build the family. You have some temporal goal that supersedes the goal of, of loving God supremely and proclaiming His greatness. 
That's the only reason he leaves Christians here. Now, you may not be a Christian. You may just be a churchgoer. But if you're a Christian, the only reason God has left you here in this world is to pro proclaim his greatness and for his greatness to be seen in your life. How you live. Everybody's watching you. You claim to be a Christian. The whole world watches you. Everybody in your orbit who knows you're a Christian. And if they're in your orbit, they ought to know you're a Christian. They're watching you. How does Jim handle tragedy? How does Jim handle disappointment? What does Jim do on Sunday? <laughs> How does Jim surf the Internet? You know. What does Jim do with his money? How, how does he honor God with his money? Your whole life is on display, not only for God to see, but for your friends and family to see. So these men and women, Hebrews 11, this is the one thing we can learn about them tonight. They looked at heaven above everything else. They looked at it. They wanted it. They pursued it. They lived like it was the most real thing in their life, right? They were not earthbound. They were heavenbound. They were on their way. They were pilgrims. They were strangers. They were exiles. They were aliens. They were all these things. And everybody in their life knew it. Here's the thing. Everybody in their life knew it. What do the people in your life know? You know, when Karen and I came here, we said, 18 years ago, we said, this this is probably the best thing we can do for our family. Although we were separated from our family, 5,000 miles away from our family. Yes, we're separated from our family, but our kids and our grandkids see that we love God above everything else. I'm not standing up here bragging. I'm telling you that, you know, your life is declaring that or it's not declaring that. And you don't have to be a preacher for your life to declare that. That's obviously not true. Your life should declare it. That I love Christ and I, I believe he's a rewarder. Oh, and that's why I live like I live, right? Your life should be shouting that I believe he is and I believe he's good. So I, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to conform. So I want us to see several truths um, in the text that we'll look at tonight, uh, several things as we make our way through the text. You heard me read the text, 7 through 12. That's the portion that I have already read to you. So what is the origin of real faith in the lives of Noah, Abraham, and Sarah? What's the origin? Did you pick up on it? Why do they have faith? Why? They just woke up one morning and decided to have faith? What happened? God happened. Right? God happened. God initiates. Did you see it when I read the text? God initiates. It's, it's Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, when they fell, they went looking for God, and they were searching and searching and searching, and they were trying to find God, but they couldn't find God. Is that the way the text reads? No. They were hiding from God. This is what natural man does. He hides from God. But God came for mankind in the garden. So how does... Abraham and Noah and Sarah, how does their faith begin? It's right in the text, right? God warned Noah, God called Abraham, God promised Sarah. This is how faith always starts. God does it. 
You know, I still remember when I was converted at 28 years old, I still remember thinking, man, I'm pretty smart. I got this. I figured this out. I figured out this Jesus thing. (laughs) Well, of course, the more I studied the scripture, the more I realized God loved me, right? God initiated faith. God initiated my salvation. It's a beautiful thing to realize and to think about. It's why we do the Bible here. It's why we, you know, preach the Bible. Because of the word of God. God warned Noah. He called Abraham. He promised Sarah. And oh, guess what? Look what he gave you. He gave you all of his word. All of it. 66 books. It's over. No more's coming. He gave it to you. It's in your lap. It's in your language. What are you doing with it? Well, we should be able to do at least as much as Noah, Abraham, and Sarah because all he did with them was he warned Noah, he called Abraham, and he promised Sarah. But look what he's given to you. He's given all of it to you. You have all of it. What are you doing with it? What am I doing with it? I have all of it. It's in my language. I can understand it. I can read it. I can memorize it. I can learn to obey it. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Okay, this is the, this is, this is the, the, the separation of the men and the boys, right? The sheep and the goats. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? God initiates with his word. This is why we preach this. This is why we teach it to your kids. This is why we used to have young adult Bible studies and women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies. Because you and I need to know what God says. Because nothing important is going to happen lest we know the word of God. And what does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. God, there's regenerating power that flows through the word of God. Nobody gets saved because Jim preaches or because Rohan witnesses or because some other thing. How do men and women get saved through the word of God? It's what God says. I save through my word. And so any church you attend that doesn't preach from the Bible, that's not a church and you should leave as quickly as you possibly can. God could not be more clear in Hebrews 11. Saving faith, biblical faith, it starts with him and his word. Here's what I know. God's made an overture to you just like he has to Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. You know why? Because you're sitting here and you're under the preached word. So the overture has been made. (laughs) And I I know I I get in trouble for saying this sometimes. I think I'm misunderstood. I, I think I'm often misunderstood. But I say in love... Don't sit under the word of God if you have no serious intention of obeying it. You remember what he told the Pharisees, right? It's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah because here I am. Here I am. I'm right in front of you. You know, the son of God, God incarnate, standing right in front of him. He said, it'll be worse for you because you're rejecting me. My point is we need to have some humility and some fear, and some trembling, right? We don't come in here in a superficial way. We come in here expecting to be changed, convicted. We come in here knowing we're dealing with godly things, with eternal things, with infinite things. So we're not cavalier with the Word of God. We're not casual with the Word of God. 
we understand what's at stake here. So the question again is, how, how, how will you respond to God and his word? Will you be like Noah, Abraham, and Sarah? Will you say yes? Will you say yes? Will you say yes? The second thing I want to see here in our text tonight about biblical faith is that it, be, it, 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 we have God's initiation and then there is an inner response. Okay, I'll show it to you in the text. You probably already picked up on it. There is an inner response. By faith, verse 7, Noah being warned. Okay, God takes the initiative. God has warned Noah about things not yet seen. It's never rained before. It's never rained before. In reverence, in reverence, he prepared an ark. There's this inner response to the word of God. So I'm asking you, how are you responding to the word of God? There's an inner response to the word of God, which manifests itself in the life. We, we talk about it all the time. If it's real, it spills out, right? If it is real, it will spill out. Again, I got to quote Piper again. I'm sorry. I love what he says about this. He says, the, this is the inner life bowing humbly with trembling uh, and joy before the awesome word of God. This is what Noah does in reverence. I looked it up. Here's some synonyms for reverence. Is this how you respond to the word of God? Listen. You respect it. You admire it. You worship the, the God of the word. You're in awe of him. You venerate him. You're astonished by him. You're amazed by him. And you can't live like the world anymore. You can't do it. <laughs> you can't live like that. You can't live that small anymore. You know, I hear this word sometimes. I love it. I, I think Miles was one of the first, Miles, she used to be here. I love what she said one time. She said, I asked her about her job. She says, it's soul crushing. <laughs> soul, she had a soul crushing job. But to me, that's what human life is without Jesus Christ. It is soul crushing and it will crush you down. Life will crush you down if your hope is not in the eternal and infinite and wonderful and beautiful God known as Jesus. If you know Christ tonight, you know about reverence. You know about awe and worship and amazement. Awe and wonder fuel the life of faith. I say it to you all the time. But, you know, this is how I grew up, so it's a, it's a drum that I beat. If you're just here because you think you ought to be or because you think you should be, then in one sense you're blaspheming God. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is desire. Christianity is I want God. I don't, I, I don't think in terms of ought and should. I think in terms of uh, this God is awesome. He saved me. I love him. I want to sit under his word. I want to sing his praises. I want to bring him an offering. Right. It's all of these kinds of things. I want to do it. You know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Why does Peter get out of the boat? He wants to. He wants to get out of the boat. He wants to walk on water because his God's out there. He believes he can because he believes God is God and God's a rewarder. That's the only reason he believed he could walk on the water. And he did. He wanted to get out of the boat. So no, we see Noah's response. In reverence, he prepared the ark. What was Abraham's response? Verse 8, not knowing 
where he was going, he went out. Okay? So there's this there's inner response that drives his action. He doesn't know where he's going, but he goes. So we don't actually, you know, hear the inward response, but we can discern what it is. What is the inward response? I radically trust this God, right? I radically trust him. It's easy to say you trust God. It's easy to say this. This is, this is the mantra of many religious people, Christians in, in particular. But what does your life say? What does your life say? At the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. You know, as they say, it's true. You do what you want to do, right? We all do what we want to do at the end of the day. Are we honoring God? Do we want to honor God? And are we honoring God? Or are we simply making ourselves comfortable? The inner response of Abraham is radical trust. Radical trust in this wonderful God. You know, I always envision this. Uh, Chidi, I can see you come home and tell Vivian, well, we're leaving. We're going. We're going to leave. Where are we? Vivian says, well, where are we going? And you say, I, I don't know, but we're leaving. So we're going to start packing up. I always wondered how this conversation went with Abraham and Sarah. I always wondered about this. I've always mused about this. Those of you who are married, you understand. Um, you understand. He didn't have the details, but he didn't need the details. He believed God was God and God was good. Didn't need the details. There were all these countless unknowns, but there was one supreme known, right? The countless unknowns. Sarah was asking question after question, and Abraham was saying, I don't know, I don't know, but here's what I know. God is God, and God is good. A thousand kilometers. Which in that day, that's a long, dangerous trip. God is God. God is good. Isn't it simple? Don't you love it? What is Sarah's response? Verse 11. She considered him faithful who had promised. That's her inner response. She considered him faithful who had promised. She wasn't able to conceive beyond the proper age. And of course, we know also that she was barren. Okay, I want to say this to you. What is your inner response to the overture of God? I can sum it up in two words. If you do not believe God is God and God is good and you do not um, seek to obey him with your life, if you do not seek to proclaim the greatness of Christ with your life, if you call yourself a Christian, here's what I can say to you. You lose. You will lose. You lose. You go with God. And I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking about living. And I'm talking about being in relationship with a beautiful God who fills your heart, soul, mind, and strength with, you know, with, with countless anticipations of all that he has for you and your great inheritance in him, right? That's the kind of health, wealth, and prosperity I'm talking about. It's on the other side. That's the kind I'm talking about. And you love this God. It's a real relationship. And there's, there's, there's deep and profound intimacy going on. You're a Christian hedonist. He is your highest pleasure. He's God. And He gives meaningful, purposeful, satisfying life. When you say yes to God, 
You begin to discover how awesome he is and you begin to discover exactly who you're supposed to be. The third truth I want to point out in the text is that uh, biblical faith always manifests itself with the external response, right? The external response. We talked about this, I don't know, a month or two ago. James chapter 2, verse 20, faith without works is dead. It's useless. And it's what God is illustrating here in Hebrews 11. You say you have faith? Well, you'll live like you have faith. If you don't live like you have faith, you don't have faith. If there are no works, there's no faith. There's just talk. And God says that kind of faith is useless. How do we know Noah had faith? How do you know? There's an ark in the backyard, right? How do you know, how do you know Abraham had faith? He left his home not knowing where he was going. How do you know Sarah had faith? This old barren woman is pregnant. There's always this external, this, this external consequence of the inner response. There'll be an external consequence. It's, it's inevitable. It's visible. I say to you, it's visible in your life. It's palpable in your life. It's the aroma of your life. So, okay. One more John Piper quote, and I promise there won't be any more. But I love what he says here. I love what he says here. He says, in, in, in the context of Hebrews 11, he says, when you start to live like this, like Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all these other men and women, your life takes on dimensions that can only be explained by the assurance of things hoped for. I love that. Jim, why do you live like that? Because of the assurance of things hoped for. I, I have an imperishable hope. And an imperishable inheritance. How do you know? Because my God is God. He speaks trillions of galaxies into existence. And my God is good. He's God and he's good. How can I lose? You can't lose. You can't lose. You can never lose in obeying God. Yeah, I said it to you last week and I looked up the text. It's in Luke somewhere. Remember what he says? Some of you will be killed. He's talking to his guys but not a hair on your head will perish. It's in Luke, I think maybe 18, I'm not sure. They will kill you, but not a hair on your head will perish. Don't you love it when God talks like this? It's a little bit mysterious. You go, what does that mean? <laughs> but it's big, you know it's big. You don't exactly know how to parse that, but it's really, really big. It's really, really big. Only God makes sense of an ark on dry land. Only God makes sense of immigrating to a place that you've never been or heard of. Only God makes sense of a barren woman becoming pregnant. You guys know a famous preacher in the States, Francis Chan. He says, uh, I quote him often on this one. I love this one. Something's wrong when your life makes sense to unbelievers. Something's wrong. Something has gone awry. You claim to be a Christian. You, can't, you claim to follow the God who's God and the God who, who's good. You claim that. But you live just like the guy next door who doesn't claim that. You're, every aspect of your life looks almost identical, except for the inconvenience of going to church sometimes. Right? Something is wrong. And I'll just take it up a notch. Everything's wrong when your life makes sense to unbelievers. It's not that something's wrong. Everything is wrong if your life makes sense 
to unbelievers. Fourth truth about biblical faith is that it enjoys a measure of God's reward now, but only that smallest portion. We don't have an overrealized eschatology, right? We're not trying to pull the riches of, of eternity into this life, you know. We're not just, we're not wholly in love with the blessings of God. We're wholly in love with God. So these guys realize that um, they were enjoying some measure of God's reward now, but it is the smallest portion. I want to remind you, you know, Paul talks about how we see uh, right now. He says we see through a glass darkly, right? We haven't seen anything yet. And that's what I want to say. The true born again believer who's who's on the heels of Christ, they realize they haven't seen anything yet. It's all out in front of them. It's only going to get bigger and more wonderful and more beautiful and more passionate. Right. It's always going to be bigger. We haven't seen anything yet. It's what Abraham and Noah and Sarah knew and the rest of the men and women in Hebrews 11. They'd only glimpsed a little bit of the greatness of God, just a little bit. And they were sold out. They were sold out. They were sold out. Born again Christians are without question the happiest people on the planet. We know, we fellowship, we communicate, and we walk intimately with the living God. But we know we haven't seen anything yet. And actually, if you read the text, you realize these men and women... Um, well, actually, look at verse 13. They die, all of these died in the faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We don't get all the promises here. They come in the new heaven and new earth. What I want to say to you, and I won't go into detail, but there's always more of God. After a billion eternities, there'll be more of God. After a billion eternities, we won't know very much about God. There'll still be an infinite amount more to learn about God. That's how beautiful He is. That's how magnificent He is. That's how mesmerizing and intellectually deep He is. An intellect. You know, this, is, this fascinates me. To probe the intellect of God. Forever. <laughs> Never getting to the end of the genius, right? Never getting to the end of the genius. So God says to Noah, build an ark. Noah says, well, it's never rained, but where's my hammer, right? And he spends 120 years building that ark because Noah knows he hasn't seen anything yet. Well, it's never rained, but he knows he hasn't seen anything yet. And God is calling him to build an ark, so he builds it. God says to Abraham, leave your home. And God says, where's my suitcase? And he travels a thousand kilometers, not knowing exactly where he was going. Because he knows he hasn't seen anything yet. He hasn't seen anything yet. And he knows God is worth a thousand kilometer trek. Sarah God says to Sarah, this 90-year-old barren woman, in a year you will have a son. And she gets the nursery ready. She hasn't seen anything yet. It's impossible for her to have a son. 
but she does. Don't you love the Bible? <laughs> don't, you love the, don't you love God? Don't you love the Word of God? Don't you love that you have no limitations? You have no restrictions? Um, here's the thing. Whatever God purposes to do in your life, oh, guess what? He'll do it. You say, well, Jim, well, that guy's, that guy's got more money than me, or that guy's more prominent than me, or this, that, or the other thing. I'm saying to you, whatever God's purpose for you, he will bring it to pass. Now, you don't have the same life. I don't have the same life as Abraham. You don't have the same life as Sarah. I'm not Noah. You're not Moses. That's not the point. We don't get off on these goofy kinds of things. We look at God and we realize that God will accomplish all he purposes to accomplish in my life if I'll just open my hands. You know, we talked about it last week. Who, who is Abraham if he doesn't obey God? You've never heard of him. Who's Sarah if she doesn't obey God? Who's Moses if he doesn't obey God? You know, you and I have to decide if we want to live a Hebrews 11 kind of life quickly. Verse 14 to 16. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. This is why we sing about heaven. They're not looking at the earth. They're not interested in the things of the earth any more than they ought to be. They've got their priorities right. God's first. Everything else is second. They're looking for a better country. Verse 15, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had, which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, but as it is, they what? Desire a better country. Can I tell by looking at your life that you desire a better country? Can your wife tell? Can your husband tell? Can your kids tell? Can your colleagues tell that you're not here? You know, wholly engaged, heart, soul, and mind, you're there. You're already there. Right? Look, look what, there's nothing else like this in all the Bible. Look at this. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. I saw a theologian, and I'm done. I've got a Two or three more comments. I love what he said. I, I don't remember who he was. But he says this. No one goes to heaven who, have, who hasn't sent his heart on before. I'm going to read it to you again. No one goes to heaven who has not sent his heart on before. So if you're not already captivated with the new heaven and new earth, you've probably got some issues to work out with God. If you're not already, you know, heaven-bound, heaven-minded, if you're not sowing um, spiritually that you might reap spiritually, right? If you're all about this, this dimension, if you're all about this, it's problematic from a biblical perspective. You've probably got a lot of business to do with God. So, I love what C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So I'm going to ask you this. Are you saying yes to God? Are you saying yes to God? I will live like 
Noah and Abraham and Sarah. Whatever you call me to. The answer is yes. Why? Because you're God and you're good. Plus, I know you're the consummate pleasure of the cosmos. I know my best life is with you. So it's always win-win, right? It's always, it is always win-win. So I want to say this, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, they're just like you. You know, I always get this. I'm not like them. Yes, you're just like them. You're flesh and blood, just like them. You have a job, just like them. Uh, you have kids, just like them. You have difficulties and struggles and griefs and hard things in your life. They have unbelief and doubt and hesitation and fear and anxiety, but they worked through it all because they believed their God was God and their God was good. So my point is this. Nobody gets to leave here tonight. Nobody leaves here not understanding that God means for you to be in Hebrews 11. He means for you to be in Hebrews 11. Now, you're never going to get in the Bible, but the he Hebrews 11, it's an open text. <laughs> you know, and this is a metaphor, obviously. But God's just adding names, just adding names. These are men and women who love me. These are men and women who believe I'm God. These are men and women who believe I'm good. And they live like it. They live like it. So my challenge to you is to take the long view, to say yes to God like you've never said yes before and live like you're a Christian. Live like you're a Christian. It looks like Hebrews 11. Let's pray together.